Acts chapter 15 is actually divided into three parts. It's divided into, so verses 1 through 5 focuses on the controversy that arose. And then the, the bulk of it, verses 6 through 29, really what happened at the meeting in Jerusalem. So that's truly the bulk of the, of the, of the, the uh, chapter. And then the last five verses, 30 through 35, is the outcome of the meeting. Now this was also discussed when we were, during our class discussion. Um, the idea of the magisterium. We start to see the magisterium for the first time working together here in the Council of Jerusalem. Now the word magisterium is not in the Bible, but we see that the magisterium is starting to exercise its authority. You know, there's, you know, because we have like non-Catholics. If it's not, if, the, if it's not in the Bible, I don't believe it. Stuff like that, you know, sola scriptura. If it's, if, if the word's not in the Bible, this is usually when I bring up, well, you know, what's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And someone says, well, the Trinity. Well, find that word in the Bible. Let me tell you, it's not in the Bible. That word, Trinity, is not in the Bible. And it's a word to Tertullian. The early church father, Tertullian, coined is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That word's not in the scriptures. They, you know, everyone believes in the Trinity. If you're a Christian, you believe in the Trinity. But just because it's not in the Bible, it doesn't mean you don't believe it. So, the magisterium is the official teaching office of the Catholic Church made up of the Pope in union with the bishops. That's when you hear the word magisterium, that's what it is. The official teaching office of the church made up of the Pope and the bishops. The Council of Jerusalem was held somewhere around 49 to 50 AD. And it truly becomes the example of all the ecumenical councils that would follow. The last ecumenical council we had was the Second Vatican Council which held between 1962 and 1965. Actually, the only ecumenical council that didn't um, answer anything new. All the councils beforehand, including Jerusalem, something arose and they, the church had to answer. So like the big one, everyone, the one everyone knows is Trent, Council of Trent. Um, have you guys done church history yet? Okay, so one of the, I think one of the classes is church history. You'll learn about Trent. Trent was the answer to the Protestant Reformation. So everything that Luther brought up, Trent really answered. Um, so, yes, sir? So the magisterium in itself isn't 
in session all the time. It is called together for certain functions and they Correct. It's not in session, but it exists all the time because you have the Pope and the bishops acting. So it's, that's the official teaching office of the church is, is the, that organization. Is it always in session? Not all the, not all the bishops together, but within, within Rome, you have bishops you know, that are heads of certain um, congregations that are also kind of speaking to the Pope. So, but the magisterium, yeah, it's not kind of an in-session, out-of-session kind of thing. It kind of always, always exists. And then there's times where you get, uh, you, get the, you get the magisterium that gathers. And then you get a letter or a directive or something. Yeah, so that's, your, yeah, so that's, that's, that's where, so like I said, we haven't had an ecumenical council since, since 65. But you also get these... Um, uh, you get these, what, what developed was these synods where, like, we've had a few under Francis, Benedict, JP2 had tons of them, where they discuss a certain topic and then a document comes out of, of that synod. It's, it's called an apostolic exhortation, which, which is the document that usually comes out of it. Now, that's not all the bishops together. That's certain bishops that focus on a topic. So when I was in grad school in 2008, uh, Pope Benedict had the one on the scriptures. It was literally right when I was starting grad school. All the bishops that gathered and the scholars of the church that gathered really had a love for the scriptures. They came together and they really picked up rear where De Verbum leaves off. De, De Verbum is the dogmatic constitution on the scriptures from Vatican II. They kind of pick up where De Verbum leaves off and then we get, we got what, about two years later, we got Verbum Domine which is the document from that synod that, that had gathered in 2008, which was more of, a, more of an extension of, uh, ver, of De Verbum. So when those documents come out, do they update the catechism? No, no. Those are just specific topics that continue to, that, that, that the, the, the synods are there for certain, um, like, points of interest that are that are affecting the church currently so benedict wanted to focus more on the scriptures because he's benedict is all about liturgy and scripture that's what pope benedict is about or was about so so yeah they don't they don't necessarily update the catechism for those the catechism is kind of its own entity in and of itself but then you have those other documents that kind of just continue to to, to support is it a different That would be something, yeah, that would be something different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the, all right, so what we see within, in Acts 15 is that the magisterium has the final say on all things when it comes to faith and morals. And that's the way it is today. When, when, when the church makes a statement, the magisterium kind of has the final, it, it has the final, final say. The the magisterium is also the guardian and protector of the deposit of faith. And the deposit of faith is scripture and tradition. So the magisterium protects the teachings of the church. So it's, it's got the final, it always has the final say. And the reason why I have ES, the ESPN analogy um, is this. So I've used this for years. 
and it's not mine. I, as a teacher, you beg, borrow, and steal. And I took this from one of my one of my fellow teachers at St. Mary's at the time, who's actually still teaching there. Let's say you have two high school. Let's say no, that's not the high school boys. Let's say you have two grandmas. They go to a Phoenix Suns game. Okay, this is the analogy I've always used. I don't know if you really want to go see the sun. This is Suns nowadays. Okay, but nevertheless, so two grandmas go to the Phoenix Suns game. What are they going to notice? They're probably going to know the score. They're going to probably, you know, know some of the players. Um, they might see the cheerleaders and go, oh, that's fun and nice. Um, you know, they're going to enjoy their time at the game. You take two high school basketball players, and they go to the Suns game. Same night the grandmas are go. Grand, they're going to know what the grandmas know, but they're going to probably know all the players. They might know some of the... Uh, the plays that the Suns are running. Uh, they might know some of the statistics from some of the, uh, the Suns uh, players. ESPN also happens to be at the game that night. They know, the st- they know what, the grandpa- what the grandmas know. They know what the high school basketball players know. But they, get, they have all information. They know who's strong from the free throw line, who's good from three-pointers, who can go to the left side, who can go to the right side, what's the percentage of free throws, what's the percentage of three-pointers. They can go back and look at all the information over years going back to like the 1950s when the Suns were playing. They have the wealth of information that the high school basketball players know that they don't know and the height and that the grandmas don't know. They have the full authority when it comes to a basketball game or sports. That's the magisterium. You guys might have some good information about the church. Father Chris, who's my pastor, we have more information than you do about the church. But then the magisterium, they blow us all away because they're the ones that have the authority on everything, on all the teachings. Um, Bishop Barron has a great explanation of authority in, one, in, the, in the Catholicism series, talking about a, um, the umpires in baseball. If you don't have umpires with the authority to make calls and strikes and, and outs, what's the point? The game turns into the craziness. You've got to have some kind of port of authority to say, yes, you know, that's a ball, that's a strike, that's an out, that's a foul, that's a home run, Okay. Um, you got to have that authority, and that's what the magisterium does for us. It gives us that, gives us that authority. All right. So let's focus. The first section of Acts 15, we get, um, so some Christians that have a Pharisee background, and these are, that, these are the certain men coming from James, they're all about Salvation is only possible unless a person is circumcised and lives according to the law of Moses. They completely accept the Gentiles are part of the church through their baptism, but they have a hard time that they are not circumcised. And what the issue is, they want you to embrace. They want these, these, this side of the argument wants you to embrace 
Judaism and practice the Mosaic precepts and rites. So, like, that's great. You're baptized. It's, all, it's awesome. But you also need to be circumcised. These comments, they trouble the apostles in Antioch because the evangelization that was happening was going to be put at risk. If we're going to start, we're going to, start to say, well, we can baptize you, but then we also have to circumcise you, and or you have to be circumcised, and... And then, and then, you know, it, 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 would, it, would, it would have shut down, a, you know, people would not have, want, a lot of people are not going to want to do that, okay? So, the appeal is made for the apostles and the elders to gather in Jerusalem to discuss the matter. And that's where we jump into the heart of the section, of the, the big section. So chapter 15, 6 through 11, this section, Luke focuses on three parts. So within this section, you've got, it breaks it, breaks it even more down. Verses 7 through 11 is all, is focuses on Peter's address. So we hear from St. Peter, And then verses 13 through 21, then we get James's address. And then verses 23 through 29, you get the text of the decree that's then sent to the churches. Peter essentially does what he does with Cornelius in the, in the baptism of Cornelius. He says to them, it's about grace and not about the law. It's grace that saves, not the law that saves. And therefore, circumcision in the law itself Yeah. So they're saying on one hand that the absolute minimum you have to do is stay away from God. And yet that's a central part of the... Uh, that's too long of an answer for this, for, for what I can't, I, 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 I would, that would take me 15 minutes to explain all of that. Okay, I apologize. No, it's all right. No, the whole blood, all of that is really meant for, uh, that's... That's a good question for sacramental theology when you guys get into the sacraments because it's, it's, cause the understanding of the blood um, is uh, the, the, in the Old Testament and how it changes in the New Testament. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, an answer I can't give to you in a quick, a, a quick answer. Okay? No, it's all right. It's a good question. It's actually a really good question. I wish I just had the time. We would never get through all this today if, if, we, if I went down that. Because that's a rabbit hole of... Yeah, that's a rabbit hole. That's, it's, not a, 
it's a good rabbit hole. It's just something that we got to, yeah, I got I to gotta keep us focused on Acts. But that's a good question. So when you do sacrament theology, for, I don't know who you guys have for sacramental theology, that's a good question to ask. Okay? So, all right. Okay, so, uh, and then we see that Peter plays, an, obviously, an important role as the maintainer of the church's unity. So Peter, Peter is the maintainer of, so as the head of the church, he's the one that is responsible for keeping the church united. Then in Acts 15, 12 through 29, or 12 through, 20, uh, 12 through 29, you have using the proofs from the scriptures, what James does is he backs up what Peter said, And James says that God desires that his new people be drawn from every nation. Everything that he pulls from, uh, the three prohibitions that he makes, all come from Leviticus. So from the, from the book of Leviticus. And then in the book of Leviticus, it's believed that not only Jews had to follow these rules, but as did foreigners. So that's what James is saying. Well, like, you know, the Gentiles in the Old Testament followed these rules. Why aren't the Gentiles of this, of the, of the New Covenant, following these rules? Kind of that's the argument. And then eventually the final decree... The apostolic decree sums up the discussions of the council and how the, contra- how the controversy has risen. And what the solution would be. The final decision really focuses on the Holy Spirit, was of the Holy Spirit. So the apostles together in prayer and through the intercession of the Holy Spirit Now what's interesting is the, the Gentiles could have continued to press their point but once Peter speaks, Peter speaks. And they had, the, they had the understanding of his authority. That kind of once he spoke, that was... When Peter said what was it, what, you know, what the final decision was, that was it. And they realized, and they realized that. 
Now, that's an interesting something to bring up. That's another rabbit hole you could go down, is the understanding of Peter's universality. Because, you know, is it the same? Did Peter understand it to be the way Pope Francis understands it? Probably not. Okay? That's a whole, that's, that was something we talked about in grad, one of the discussions that came up in grad school. We actually talked about it in class. Someone brought it up. I think it was Scott, I think Dr. Hahn brought it up. Scott Hahn brought it up. And then we were talking about it at dinner that night, all the, the ones that we were hanging out. But it's, a, it's, an interest, it's an interesting, I mean, that's what you do in grad school. You, you hang out. You, you, you live in the library, go to class, and you have these discussions like this. That's very, you know, but the universality of the church and, you know, the difference between Peter and the, the modern-day popes. Um, and then the council's, so again, the council's decision is that of the Holy Spirit himself. So it's the, the full authority lies with Peter as well as through the intercession of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's decision. And that was basically not to sacrifice to the idols and be chased. And then what, when they said, uh, and, oh, and, and from what is strangled, I couldn't see when they just need killing the animals or something. Yeah. So, yeah. So all of those, all of those Old Testament <laughs> precepts and laws, they're all not neat. I mean, Christ, you, you don't need the laws. You don't need temple worship because Christ fulfills all of that. I mean, there's no reason to have temple worship anymore. There's no reason to sacrifice those animals because the, the, one, the, the one ultimate victim and sacrifice, Christ, he, he fulfills all of that, takes, takes care of all that. So that's why there's no reason, that's why eventually when the temple is destroyed, and that's interesting, oh, gosh, there's so many things I could tell you. That's an, a, Pope Benedict's book, I think it's the Spirit of the Liturgy, talks about the Jewish historians talking about between the time of Christ and 70 AD. Has anyone ever read Spirit of the Liturgy by Benedict? It's phenomenal. It'll change your whole understanding of the liturgy. Um, he talks about in the Old Testament, in the temple, that, that the Jewish historians talk about almost like these mysterious sounds of almost like the presence of God leaving the temple before 70 AD and 70 AD was the destruction of the temple. So it's very, yeah, it's a whole nother, it's a very interesting point that he brings up that the, that the Jewish historians bring up themselves. Okay. All right. Uh, verses 10, uh, verses 30 to 35. So now we see Paul and Barnabas together. And they're with, uh, they're also with Judas and Silas, a different Judas than, than the 12 apostles. They returned to Antioch to bring the news of the apostles' decree. Now Paul begins another apostolic journey. We see that starting in verse 36 of uh, chapter 15. So the churches that he established in his first apostolic journey, they're now going to go travel again to again and continue to bring this decree to, to, uh, to those churches. And they visit, again, they visit a lot of the same areas that, that they visited in the first journey. So you're going to see, you're going to see Syria. 
They travel to Lystra, which is where Timothy joins them. They're going to move through Asia Minor. And they hit, you know, Neapolis, Thessalonica, which is one of the, you know, Thessalonians, eventually making their way to Athens. So they're going to eventually make their way to Greece. And they also visit Ephesus and Caesarea, Caesarea on the way back to Antioch as well. Now, now, the scriptures don't talk about it, but there's a chance that, you know, I would imagine St. Paul also met the Blessed Mother. We also have a tradition in the church that, Jane, uh, that, um, that John, when he took Mary into his home, traveled to Ephesus with her, okay, which is in modern-day Turkey. Um, and there's a home in, in outside of Ephesus that we believe to be the home that John had built for the Blessed Mother uh, when they were in when they were in Ephesus together. Now there's an argument that Mary never left Jerusalem, but then there's a bigger argument that she says that she did leave Jerusalem. And I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's, you start looking at especially a lot of the early Mar- a lot of the Marian shrines throughout Europe. Um, it is believed that she also went to Greece. There's the Holy Mountain where all the Orthodox uh, the Orthodox um, communities are in Greece in it's called, it's called the Holy Mountain uh, we believe that Mary also uh, visited there as well so I mean these are things that we see in tradition not necessarily in the scriptures but Paul when he when he was in Ephesus more likely uh, you know probably had met met Mary as well um, okay and then eventually we get uh, whoop And then in, uh, let's see, where else am I? So, and then uh, Acts 15, 36 to 41, Paul and Barnabas, they separate due to a disagreement between Mark. So it just shows you that even the early apostles struggled with each other. Okay? Thinking, oh, these guys are all saints. Well, yeah, but they also had their disagreements with each other. They also had their own personalities. Okay? Just because you get frustrated with someone at your parish doesn't mean you're not going to be a saint. Okay? All right? Yeah. Someone, yeah. Okay? So, not either someone in the parish office or someone at the parish. Okay? I work for a parish, so I know people get annoyed with us easily, and I'm thinking, well, I'm just telling you what the church, what the church says. So, um, I mean, it's in the catechism here. So, um, but, so it just shows you that the early church, we see this too. We see disagreements occur. Um, so there's no strain on the relationship, just disagreements, how things should be done. Paul thought one way, Barnabas thought another way. They, dis- they disagreed. But, but Luke definitely follows Paul in the. Correct, yeah, the yeah. It, and I, this might relate to chapter. 16, but there's places where he says, and, and as we were going to the place of prayer, is that supposed to be Luke there also? Mm-hmm. Right, and he's observing, he's part of that group? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you see eyewitness accounts yeah. of, of Luke in there as well. Alright, so chapter 16, 
Now Paul is first joined by Timothy. And if you didn't know, Timothy plays a big role in the apostolate of Paul. Now, he was already a Christian. Timothy was a Christian already when he started working with Paul. St. Timothy is usually the saint we go to when, it, when, it, when you know, people that say, oh, you're young, you have no idea what you're talking about. Okay? Well, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. You could be young with great amounts of wisdom. You may not have a lot of life experiences, but you look at some of the great young saints of the church. St. Maria Goretti, St. Dominic Savio, okay? Even Blessed Pio Giorgio Frassati. I mean, he was, he was uh, in his 20s, but still, these younger saints, everyone's like, oh, you're young, you don't have a, but there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge and, and, uh, or like personal experience. Timothy had great wisdom. He was already, con- we don't know. He was already converted as a Christian. I don't know. I just, yeah, I don't know. So, maybe. So, but his mother and grandmother were already Christians. So, so yeah, so somewhere, somewhere, um, I don't know who converted Timothy. I don't know if we, I don't know if we know that exactly. Now, what's interesting, what St. Paul does with Timothy, if you read Acts, he circumcises Timothy. Okay? Not, now, it's not to contradict the, the decree of the apostles, but it was to help him preach to the Jews. Okay? Now, I don't know what that looks like in practicality. You're like, well, why would he, why would he do that? Okay? Would the Jews ask? I don't know. You know, it's one of those things where you're like, in modern day 21st century, we're like, uh, that's kind of strange. But, but in the early church, it might have been something that, you know, it was, they might have asked. So he does it, though, with great deliberation and prudence. So what Paul wants, because he wants Timothy to be heard by the Jews, he would need it to be circumcised. And Paul knew it wasn't needed, but it was needed to speak to the Jews. So he doesn't, when we first read, when I first read it, I was like, oh, wait, he's contradicting what Peter said. Now, I mean, he doesn't do it, he doesn't do it just haphazardly. He, he, he deliberates it and really thinks about doing it. But the only way to get Timothy, the, the Jews to hear Timothy was to, was to do this. Um, and again, we see that the, uh, the Holy Spirit, and here it's called the Spirit of Jesus, acts as their guide. And Kathleen, this is what you were talking about. Verse 10, we see the narrative shifts to the first person. Luke is on the journey with Paul. So instead of him writing it like a historical book, he starts to say we, and we start to see him say I, because he's like, I was there. So he's saying, I'm on these journeys. What they continue to do in 16 is they continue to preach and baptize. Okay? That's exactly the church's mission today. That's the primary mission of the church. Preaching and baptizing. That's, our, that's, that's, the, that's the role of the church. And then the other thing we see in 16 is that a whole household, it's in verse 31, a whole household is baptized.
And we believe the household contained even small children. So this is the idea of baptism at a young age. When the church teaches about infant baptism, this is one of the scripture verses it points to. Because you had both children and, and adults in this household being baptized. Because we have a lot of, there's a lot of non-Catholics out there that, you know, baptize, you know, when they're 12 or 13 or, oh, when they're, you know, they're really going to, you know, and as Catholics, we want to get that, we want to get that sin off their souls as soon as possible. Canon law, I think, states it has to be done within, it should be done within a month of the child's um, birth. So that's something my wife and I are already thinking. I'm thinking, we're going to take those baptisms. I'm like, they're really going to make me take a baptism class? So, which I might have to. I mean, I'm not, I'm not over the baptism classes because I have a degree in theology and I've taught sacramental theology. But, but what we, we're going to take those classes. So, so yeah, then we're going to fly Bishop Lopes out, who's my buddy who married us, and uh, have fly Bishop Lopes out and have him baptize the baby. So. But we're already thinking. I'm like, all right, we got to take that class in like July. So we got to get that baby baptized as soon as we can. Okay. Uh, chapter 17. This is a big chapter because this is where Paul arrives in Athens. This is the first time the pagans of Greece hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The audience is intellects and regular people. So that's the audience that Paul is speaking to. They're regular people. They're your average Catholic in the pew. And then they're also the intellectuals. Okay, now I mean, I'm I'm saying Catholics. They weren't Catholic yet. but, But this is just... Because Greece, and specifically Athens, since the time of Plato and Aristotle, was the hotbed of intellectual philosophy. And this is important because now we start to see Paul evangelizing in a different way. He adapts the message of Jesus Christ to fit the culture of Greece. Because you have people that come from different paths and different, different um, ways of life. So he's trying to say, look, the gospel of Jesus Christ fits into your culture. And this is the way, this is the way it does. Because we see this in the church. We've seen this throughout the tradition of the church that many people come from different paths and directions. Now, you know, we, that's, you know, there's so many different things you could talk about with here. A lot of the Greeks, um, even, though the, even though Greek, the Greek religion was mythological, was, was, was polytheistic, and they, they believed that there was um, multiple gods, Plato and Aristotle actually come to the understanding that there's one true God. 
They come to understand this through reason, but not by divine revelation. So, the scriptures to us divinely reveal the truth about God and Christ, who, who, was, who is God. But the, the ancient is, like Plato and Aristotle, when you read Plato and Aristotle, if you've ever read Plato and Aristotle, you can't put Jesus into Plato and Aristotle. You can't put Christianity into it because it didn't exist yet. The, are the teachings of Jesus. So I, when I, I my, my, my bachelor's is in philosophy. I remember my professors who were ardent, solid, orthodox Catholics were like, they were my, my philosophy professors. They're like, when you read this stuff, you can't read Christ into it. You got to read it just for Plato and Aristotle. Now there were classes where we focused on, you know, Plato and Aristotle and how Christianity was made an influence or how they influenced Christianity. That's something different. But when you read Plato's Republic, trying to say, oh, this is, wait, this is like Christianity. No, 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 no. You got to read it. Okay. That's the idea. By this time in Athens, these are kind of your, your big thought. You have Plato and Aristotle really focusing uh, the intellectual platform or not platform, landscape of Athens is really focused on these two big uh, philosophers who in their own right are awesome. Okay, if you never read Plato or Aristotle, read it because it's really good. It's not easy, but it's good. So Paul is met by two groups in Athens. They're the Epicureans. So that's E-P-I-C-U-R-E-A-N-S. The Epicureans. E-P-I-C-U-R-E-A-N-S. And the Stoics. S-T-O-I-C-S. And it's at the Areopagus. Okay, that's where they meet. That's where Paul preaches. The Areopagus was the hill outside of Athens uh, and where the tri- it was an outside hill, kind of where the tribunal would meet, where legal cases were held. So like in Greece, when a legal case was brought up, this is where they did it. It is this specific spot. And Paul just fires up, just just gets, you know, it's all about apostolic zeal. And he just, he, just, he just gets so excited about the faith and just takes it to them. Now, what we see with what these two philosophies that kind of exist in Athens... Paul's really got to do his work because here's the, here's the two philosophies. So the Epicureans, they were very materialistic. They focused on the material world. They didn't believe in the understanding of multiple gods. So like the traditional Greek mythology... Their understanding was, well, if they didn't believe in gods, and if there were, well, they didn't care about mortals. That was kind of their understanding. So they're like, we don't really believe in the gods, and if the gods do exist, they're not really going to concern themselves with us mortals. Because if you've ever read any Greek literature, like 
Plato's Iliad and the Odyssey, you see how much the gods play and roll with the, with the mortals. Okay? Um, Homer. What, what, what did I say? Plato. Plato, yeah, sorry, Homer. Yeah, not Plato. Sorry, Plato's on my head. Okay, or in my brain. Homer. Any of, any of that stuff. Even like Virgil's Aeneid, you see constant role play between the gods and the and, and mortals. The other thing the Epicureans were all about is they were pleasure-seeking. They sought out nothing but pleasure. That was their, that was kind of their end goal. So that's what, that's what you're dealing with in, in Greece and in, at the, in, the, in the ancient world. Remember, remember the Corinthians, chapter 11, the whole, the whole treatise on love? That's what, you know, pleasure-seeking, desires of the flesh, all that stuff was what they were all... I'll get to you in a second. That's, so that's, that's, one, that's one argument. You know, that's, one, that's one philosophy. The Stoics... So their understanding was that the logos or like this divine reason in a sense was the cause of the shapes of the universe. But not divine like we think divine. Their notion of the world was pantheon, uh, uh, was pantheism which is all about like God is not the creator of trees, but God is literally in the tree itself. You guys ever seen, I give it, have you ever seen, and some people have seen it, some people haven't. Um, what's the name of that movie? With the people, the tree, the tree people. Avatar. Uh, Avatar, that's it. Avatar, have you ever seen Avatar? Avatar is like a pantheistic religion. You know, the way, the way they worship the trees and the nature? Very similar. That's what pantheism is. It was all about individual responsibility and self-sufficiency. So this is what Paul's, pre- Paul's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to these pleasure-seeking materialistic Epicureans and these pantheistic individual focus on yourself Stoics. Okay, that's who he's that's who he's bat- that's who he's battling with in, in Athens. So it's challenging, okay? We think about the times, our, our culture, how challenging our culture is itself right now. Paul had his hands full as well. Okay? All right, let me finish Acts 17, then we'll take a short break. Um, so Acts 17, 22 through 34. So it's not the first letter to the pagans. Uh, in Acts by Paul or first sermon I should say not letters first sermon but it's the longest I said letter it's a sermon not the first sermon to the pagans but it's definitely the longest it's really the it's really the first model of Christian apologetic the, the Christian apologetic method 
How do you defend Christianity? Because that's what apologetics is. It's the defense comes from apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to defend. So like the apology of uh, Socrates, uh, apology of Socrates written by Plato, talks talks about Socrates defense. So when we say apologetics, where it's the understanding of the defense of our faith, which I would imagine a lot of you know. Uh, he seeks to show how reasonable Christianity is and the fact that his religion can hold its own with the best of human thought. How reasonable Christianity is and that Christianity can hold its own thoughts can hold its own with the best of human thought. Which at the time, you want to go, you want a human, th- the best of human thought, it, Athens is where you went. On a side note, the best thing I ever did for myself was have a, was get a degree, the study theology was to get a degree in philosophy. Now, I would never do it, would I study philosophy as a 45 year old? No. But the best thing I did is, when I was younger was studying philosophy. Because reading all of that, that's why priests, that's why so many priests get degrees in philosophy at seminary first, because it helps you with theology. Um, Franciscan's theology program, the master's in theology, you have to take certain preliminary philosophy classes before you start to take the theology classes. Because philosophy is kind of your, your basis for theology. So again, reading Plato, reading Aristotle, reading Thomas, now Thomas Aquinas is obviously a Christian and a Catholic, but reading all that, uh, reading St. Bonaventure, gosh, I mean, think about it now, I'm like, oh, I wish I could go back and study it now, and the things I know about life now, and when I was 20 years old, and 21 reading this stuff, um, yeah, it's amazing. Plato and Aristotle is just, in, in and of themselves, just unreal. Um, and then there's modern philosophy, which is garbage. Essentially, you, t- throw the, you can throw the book out the window if you want. So, one of my buddies, who's now a priest, actually did that one time. In one of our classes, he asked the priest, the Jesuit priest, are we going to need this book anymore? And it was full of modern literature. And the priest goes, nope. He goes, good, because it's garbage, and threw it out the window. And we were on a four-story building. We were on, a, on the fourth story of this building, yeah. Now he's a, now he's a Benedictine priest. It's kind of funny. So, all right, so the central point of this whole address is that human beings have been created by God. That human beings have been created by God, and God creates in them kind of a a nostalgia that impels them to seek Him. So it's like Augustine's quote, you know, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Where there's always this restlessness to our human condition till we finally put our trust in Christ and in the Lord. You know, then it's like, but we're always, we're always seeking him. Paul understood that very, very, very early on. 
So Paul focuses on three different, three different parts in this, in this sermon. So verses 24 and 25... He, he says that God is the Lord of the world and does not need to live in human temples. So this again talks about what Christ tells the Samaritan woman. You're not going to need a temple. That's why the, that's why the, the council of Jeru- that's why the temple in Jerusalem is no longer needed. God works outside of these of these human temples. Verses 24 and 25. Verses 20, uh, the second part of 25, so it's like 25b, and the first part of verse 27, which is 27a, Paul Paul focuses on that man was created by God and is dependent on him for everything. And then lastly, also in 27a into verse 29, Paul says that there's a special relationship between God and man. And that idolatry is serious. It's a serious matter. Now, remember, you've got certain, this is in Greece, where a big part of their religion or for some of them, are the gods. Focusing on the gods. Yeah. And their economy, too. Yeah, and their economy, yeah. So it's, it's something that they're, they're, struck, they're struck. You know, even though, like, in Athens, and as we see, not a lot of them, um, not a lot of them convert. Some do, but not a lot, a lot do. But in the outline areas in modern-day Greece, the people are more open to it. In Athens, they're closed off to it. So really what Paul tells them is you've got to shake off these false notions of God. I mean, you, 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 you think about Paul's, Paul's sermon here. It's the, it's the same thing we've been teaching for 2,000 years. You know, you got, I mean... We have gods in our own lives. They're not these idols of stone, but they're other gods that rule our lives. Okay? There's certain things that, you know, there's certain things that rule us. And that's what, when we stick those things in front of, of Jesus, they, they rule us. They, they, they dominate our lives. Everyone's got their own stuff that they deal with. Okay? So that's Paul's thing. You got you to get rid of those false notions, repent of your sins, and focus on Christ. I like the way he, um, like at first when he, he's kind of getting there, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's trying to appeal, you know, like... 
Well, yeah, he's saying, look, you're, you're a religious people. You're religious, I'm religious. Let's, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to appeal. You're trying to appeal to have them understand, you know, have them to see that there's a similarity. Because the thing is, he uses their language and writings to win over listeners. Like natural philosophy and Christian thought are compatible and they can work together. So like the, 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 uh, the cardinal virtues. I mean, we, we, the church still wholeheartedly teaches the cardinal virtues and focuses on the cardinal virtues. You know, prudence, temperance, justice, um, prudence, temperance, justice, and, and uh, fortitude. Yeah. That's what we focus on. We still teach those. Christianity, and those are in the catechism. We still talk about that. That's part of natural philosophy. That stuff's compatible. So Paul talks about it. Then years, centuries later, you see Thomas Aquinas and St. Albert the Great. They take Aristotle, and they use all of Aristotle's thoughts, and they apply it to Christianity. That's really where you get it. It's, it's amazing to see Aristotle within Christianity. The problem they have, the Greeks have, is resurrection of the dead. That's where they're, that's their struggle, is the resurrection of the dead. And Paul teaches them that faith is required for resurrection of the dead. And then in the end of Acts 17, some follow Paul and some don't. Because with Aristotelian thought, Aristotle was a was a, was an empiricist, which means all truth comes from what you see and feel, and t- like what you like on the, the visual world, the material the material world. And it was the understanding of Aristotle is once you were dead, you were dead. That's it. There's no more. So again, that's kind of the the understanding. You know, that's one of the thoughts is once you were dead, you're dead. So the understanding of the resurrection in the body is hard for the Greeks. Now, a lot of these philosophies have made their way throughout the throughout history again, and we're seeing some of this stuff even even today. Yeah, I didn't mean it was hedon. I didn't say it was hedonism. Yeah, it's not, but it's like, but like within the within the scope or the landscape of the materialistic world, the things that bring pleasure, not necessarily heat, not a hedonistic pleasure, but stuff that brings pleasure. That's what they sought out. That's what they sought after. You know, instead of like our our focus, we're we're always told as Catholics, this is not our final home. We're here for a short time, you know, and then we go to our final home. 
while we're here on earth, yes, we enjoy certain things, but it's not, it's not, we don't put those things in front of, uh, in front of our Lord. Everything, we, we got to keep our focus always on Christ. That's why even with all this garbage going on in the church, uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall said um, on Twitter last week, it doesn't, you know, 100 years from now, all these popes and bishops will be dead, and so will we. What our job is to focus on Jesus, the church, and the, and the sacraments. That's our focus should be. Because all this stuff that's happening in the church, it, we've seen it before. And how the church continues to survive is the, is the faithful continue to just, we just keep going. You know, the world will say, oh, abandon it. Oh, why are you still Catholic? Oh, you're Catholic? You know? And it goes after you. People go after you all the time. You say you're Catholic. But it's just like, we just keep on going. So that's the thing that we have to just keep remembering. And and that's why the early church just survives. If the apostles had given up, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today. So...